Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. We are brought to you by Mio, makers of the world's first strapless heart rate monitor sports watches, and MedHab, makers of RPM Squared, an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Do you love to get out and challenge yourself? Running your first marathon or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing? Well, sit tight because this is a show you just don't want to miss. I'm with Dotsie Bosch. She's a 2012 Olympic silver medalist. She was part of the women's team pursuit. And she is seven-time national champion, two-times Pan American gold medal winner, motivational speaker. She is working with Universal Sports as a commentator. And she knows a buttload about cycling. <laughs> so we brought her on. So we, she, I know she's going to laugh when I told her that because essentially that's, I told her earlier, so much that she's got under her belt, there's lots to talk about. But I wanted to bring Dotsie on because I wanted to get a, a very experienced Olympian's perspective on various coaching and training modalities, which I think are universal regardless of the sport. Dotsie, welcome to the show, and say hello to our audience. Wow, thank you so much. Yes, ready to talk about a buttload. Thank you for that. <laughs> I don't know why that got stuck in my head. I just... I know. It, <laughs> but, okay, so Dotsie, my first thought, first of all, I think that track cycling is really amazing. I, I Just the, the whole concept of this raw power and the precision in which you need to be able to throw down over the course of that 3,000 meters. And I know that you came into that sport and before being in track racing, you were a road racing specialist and, you know, put a lot of history with that. But can you kind of share your thoughts about the differences between going from road to the track? Oh, sure. Yeah. It was a unique uh, transition, to say the least. I mean, you know, simply put, the main difference is uh, you, you, there's no shifting in track racing. And that sounds kind of uh, silly um, and maybe unimportant. But honestly, that is uh, kind of at the, the genesis of it is uh, the, the biggest training difference that you need to adapt to. And by that, I mean on the road – and let's just say a time trial, for example, because this will make sense to the triathletes as well, since that's their discipline. Um, you go off the, the start ramp and you start in a, you know, a fairly easy gear. So you move your aerobic system, right, your cardiovascular system, your muscular system up to speed. And then you start finding bigger gears that you're going to settle into. And along that route, you may find that you've, you, you hit a hill or you just hit a bad spot and you're able to kind of back out the gear, spin the legs out, move some lactate through, not rely on your muscular system as much, rely more on your cardio system, and then climb back up to the larger gears as you, you know, kind of start to feel better. Well, in track racing, 
seeing specifically individual pursuit, team pursuit, I mean, all of the disciplines, you only have one gear, it's a fixie and no brakes. But in the uh, team pursuit or um, individual pursuit discipline, we start from a standing start, so a complete dead start in a gate. And we need to have on a large enough gear so that once we get up to speed, we can maintain that speed over the duration of the event. So 3,000 kilometers, now it's gone to 4,000 kilometers for the next uh, Olympic Games. So in that, you are needing to build a massive requirement for raw strength. And a lot of people talk about raw power for track, but the truth is it's raw muscular strength that once you start, and the start is a big load, and everyone thinks that that's kind of the biggest load that you might see as you go along in the race, starting in that massive gear. But what actually, when actually it is about a minute and a half into the event is when we start getting that nasty, long, seeping surge of lactate that is, we all know, miserable feeling. And you're going, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, what am I going to do? That's when you have to have enough strength to continue turning that gear over. And for the trackies out there at Olympic Games, we rode 102-inch gears um, and turned that gear over at about 122 RPMs. The beauty of the track is it's all a math equation. You can figure out exactly what gear you need to ride at what RPM to do what time on a 250-meter track. Little variability in the air pressure and the heat. But other than that, it's pretty much a, it's a math equation. And so in order to continue turning over that gear, because you can't shift and then start relying on cardio system, you have to stay in that 102-inch gear. And quite simply, you have to continue at that same RPM, or obviously what's going to happen? You're going to slow if you don't stay at an RPM. So that's the, really the main difference from a training application different between the road and the track is in the raw strength building and that muscular strength and power. That was a really good explanation of the differences. And, and you know, I, I think this is really interesting because I want to take you somewhere completely out of your wheelhouse because in actuality, it's not out of your wheelhouse. It's a function of the way the body responds to work. And as I suggested to you before the show, I deal with all sorts of athletes. But it always comes back to what you just discussed. It's a function of how much power can you produce, how much of it can you sustain, and what can you do to mitigate this ensuing lactate production if necessary, and or how do you prepare your body to deal with it more efficiently. So what I'm saying is this. What I've done a lot of lately is i worked with a lot of these obstacle racers, and they're coming into the world championship season right now. And for them, just to share with you, as you shared your sport with us, is that there are three major events coming up, and they're, they're brutal aerobic events. And at the same token, there's a lot of anaerobic needs in these events, in that, first of all, the world championships at Lake Tahoe, which is a Spartan event, What's interesting about what you just said was you're essentially managing your power output. You're managing the amount of lactate. Hopefully, your training is taking you to a place where you can support more and more load before you get into the scream fest where your muscles are just on fire and dying, especially when you don't have gears. You're not in a place where you can like take it to an easier gear, roll your legs, and try to let some of that waste go away and then try to get back on game again. You've got 
a fixed gear, you've got a fixed path, and you've got to produce that cadence in order to produce the outcome, right? Correct. Right. So at the end of the day, what you do and what most all athletes do that are going to get to that place where they're going to challenge their ability to support this this workload is you have to get very proficient in managing your energy system. So I, I want to ask you, and I, and I know that in cycling, power is the deal. I mean, everybody is really focused on their training is scheduled by the amount of power or percentages of power that they're producing, right? Yep, there you are. Talk, talk to me about how you would approach your training leading into a 3,000-meter pursuit. What's what's the, the meat and potatoes of your training? Uh, well... It's it's I would say that it's segmented uh, in three kind of in three parts. Um, just touching on what you were uh, you know saying about you know, athletes in, in this environment, you need, to, you need to figure out a way basically to um, delay that lo- onset of uh, extreme lactate or being able to uh, more readily and and uh, quickly uh, metabolize it. For the track, um, because we can't make a change or a shift, we have to rely um, almost entirely at that point on our muscular system. And this is why. The, and the Aussies have done quite a lot of research in this area where uh, for 3,000 meters, there's a, there's a max cadence that, that someone can turn over for a period of time. You know, I mean, you know, the sprinters on the track turn over, you know, cadences in the 160s, 170s, 180s for, uh, you know, 10 seconds for a sprint. But over the duration of, you know, three, three minutes, 15 seconds or so, there's, there's a max that, that, that men and women, and they found that for men, it's about 128 RP, RPMs, 127, 128 is the max they can sustain. And for women, it's about 124, max 125. And like I said, we did 122 in 102 inch gear. So because of that, you can't just, when the lactate comes on or the burn comes on, you can't just switch to, well, I'll just spin higher, right? Because you're already up at, if you're, you know, on a world level, you're already up at that ceiling. And so you're, you're there and you're stuck in this monster gear that you have to continue to turn over. So the real meat and potatoes and the foundation of what I worked on, and this is for me, especially because I came from, uh, you know, 10 years of professional road racing is I had a tremendous amount of strength. I mean, just really raw strength that I had to build. So that for me came in uh, the inverted leg sled because um, I could do, you know, squats and, you know, certain kinds of, um, you know, hamstring deadlifts and that type of thing. But in order to produce what I was going to eventually need to produce at Olympic Games, um, I needed to be lifting. And we kind of figured this out as a math equation for what I weighed and what, you know, my body was going to be able to produce. 600 to 650 pounds is what I needed to be lifting um, on my legs in intervals of 60 reps because we wanted to go all the way up to almost the duration of the event or about half the duration of the event, I should say, um, at five times. So I could never hold that amount of weight on my shoulders. I mean, in a million years, I would crumble because I'm kind of, you know, skinny up top. So we did it in the form of the inverted leg sled for that reason and because it really targets your glutes and your hips. And that's where I feel like so many cyclists miss the boat. 
they're not targeting and activating those glutes and those hips, which is the largest, largest muscle group in our body. I mean, we got, we got a lot of force and a lot of power that can come from there if it's activated. So you don't just want to activate, you know, the quads, calves, and the lower hamstrings. You want to get those upper hamstrings, glutes, and that's really for any kind of cycling, especially, I think, in triathlon and the long distances. Um, you know, some athletes, because, and I get it, although I don't understand it because I'm not a runner, they have to be in certain positions on the bike so that they're then able to get off the bike and run a marathon. But I'm, I'm wondering if there's some kind of happy medium in there where they can access that, those glutes more readily so that then they do have their quads saved more for the run. So that was the foundation of my training. And then we would go into, um, you know, really specific on-track work, uh, you know, with the team, certain types of, uh, of interval work. Um, I did a lot of work on the BT trainer, which is a fan-based trainer that the Aussies, you know, they created in, gosh, I think the 60s or 70s. Um, and it really kind of mimics the uh, feeling on the track, whereas the harder you go, the quicker you go, I should say, the higher the RPMs, the harder it feels, which is the opposite just on a regular, you know, stationary trainer. So the BT was a big part of my training as well. Okay, so I want to slow you down because uh, you, you made me pause when you said 600 pounds. So what you're telling me, if I'm not missing you, is that if they figured out that you need to be able to push 600, 650 pounds, whatever you said it was, right. that's collectively over the time that you're going to have to to sprint? I mean, are we talking about like, for example, if you did 150 pounds uh, for X amount of repetitions that equates to to what we're talking about? Or are you suggesting to me that you're doing, you're loading up a sled and doing 600-pound leg presses? That's correct, the latter. That's what that's what it was loaded on, right. It was six plates aside, and the bar itself is, is um, you know, 45 pounds. So it was, I got, I mean, one, and then, so it ended up being eight plates. Wow. Aside. It, it, got, it got huge. And, and, I mean, that was over two and a half years of a build cycle on this so I certainly didn't start there but they knew that that's where or my coach knew that's where he needed to end up for me to have that final output and we were focused on one thing the Olympics so you know I had some races in there some world cups and even even a world championships where I was not quite fantastic because we were um, still you know on that road on that journey where my body was you know like everyone knows, you know, you up, 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 and then you get a dip, and then you kind of get, you get some bigger dips, and then up, 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 and then a dip, that you're constantly, you know, as the graph would flow on an upward trend, so we had that one goal in mind, and that's, you know, where we ended, and he knew that that was the, not that I would be, when you turn over the pedals in that 102-inch gear that I'm experiencing a 600-pound load, but that that's what I would need to be able to lift in order to have the muscular strength to turn over the gear that I needed to at Olympics at 122 RPMs. Wow. What did you weigh when you were competing at the Olympics? Um, well, so that's kind of interesting because that, that digs into my past where I um, haven't been on a scale that I could view the weight in many, many years. Um, he weighed me and I just I just turned around and got on the scale because I that's just, yeah. <laughs> that's just not somewhere I'll ever spend any time again. Um, but I think because I know my body really well and I, I just know how it felt and how it moved, I think I was probably around 145 at Olympics. Okay. Well, I got to tell you, that's a buttload of weight. I said it again, didn't I? 
That's a, a, but it is. It, it's a lot of weight for a 145-pound girl to to be doing leg press with. Right, and remember, if inverted leg sled, and I'm just going to say that because I, there, it is a completely different load. The leg press is so much more quad centric. So it's the one where you're kind of like, you know, you're you're not laying down, but you're in a much more of an inverted. Yeah, you're on a 45 degree angle. Exactly. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. You're pushing up in with your glutes, right, then out. Right. Not out. No. Not I'm purple. I'm way. I'm way with you. I, okay. I used to, sure the listeners are because yeah. that would be you know yeah. debilitating to try and do that on a leg press. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I, I obviously enough as you suggested trying to put 600 pounds on your shoulders. I was gonna. I was prepared to be very seriously impressed. If you told me you're do- <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you're putting 600 pounds on your shoulders and doing squats. Right. That, that, I think that would be the wrong sport for you. I mean, we'd have to, I don't know. Jeez, that's, that's crazy. Okay, so I guess what I was getting at is that there was no, I mean, aside from someone doing the math and figuring out your force production needs to be X in order for you to sustain that cadence at that gear for uh, a length of time, did you do any sustainable work where you're looking at power, uh, using a power meter and determining what kind of load you had to sustain for any length of time and had training where there was some progression that carried you to a specific load? Goodness, yes. Yes, definitely. I mean, one uh, aspect to team pursuit that, again, that I don't think people really realize because it's short, it's, you know, three, you know, between three and three and a half minutes, is the incredible aerobic capacity that you actually need to be able to turn over that strength in that, uh, you know, period of time. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's really very comparable to like the 800 or even almost the 1500 meters on the running track where it's that middle distance. So it's the combination of the anaerobic and aerobic engines in our, in our bodies. You know, it really relies on both. So you, you have to put both together. So I did more, many, 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 many five and six hours, six hour rides. Uh, a lot of them I did with uh, surges mid ride and then surges at the end when I was, you know, almost at complete fatigue. But we would keep those rides at very specific power numbers. And then, and then also the BT trainer that I was mentioning, we would do uh, four minute efforts on those at a very specific gear, pushing a very specific power. So yes, to your question. The reason I asked that question is I'm, I'm kind of setting you up because my audience and a lot of people that I, I deal with day to day, the way they approach their training is random, meaning that they may have a specific intent for the day. They may not. They may or they may not have a plan. They, they may be just subject to what their friend's going to do. So, hey, let's get together and let's go blah, 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 you know, and okay, I'll do that with you. And and then it becomes a suffer fest to see who can beat who. And it seems like that all the training kind of follows that process there. And so you can't look back at it and say, well, this plus this plus this equals this end. And what I really am trying to bring you around to is the focus and conversation that understanding where you need to go and what's going to take you there. Because in Olympic training, the whole process of periodizing an athlete to come to this peak efficiency at a very specific point in time is the people that do this work 
are very, very methodical. And the processes that they put you through are very, very methodical. And they're leading you. And they're progressively putting loads on you in such a fashion that I liken it to a tug of war. You know, you got, right. you're pulling a lot one day, and then one day you just don't have the strength to pull, and you get pulled around for a while. And then you you end up essentially where you were. You you don't you don't progress. It's just the nature of and we talked about this briefly before the show too is that in cycling we have history. We have tremendous amounts of data and history to draw from. And we know or the people that are behind the scenes that that coach you and and the people that you you've coached, you you, you have this knowledge that well, this plus this, from a physiological perspective, will create an end product. And I want to kind of get you to talk to me a little bit about how much you employed heart rate, if at all, how much and when and how you employed power. And was there a point in time where you, you kind of gotten away from one thing and relied more on the other? Did that become a big thing in your, in your whole training career? Right. Well, power was a huge uh, component because... Um, I mean, you know, cyclists have had access to power meters, uh, you know, for, I mean, I got my first power meter, uh, in 2001, right? So they <laughs> we've had access to them for many, many, many years. Um, they completely changed the face of, of, of how we train, how we period up, periodize and how we, you know, apply certain trainings at, at you know, certain times. Uh, for me, I think that heart rate is uh, still really important component because it's just kind of like your 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 you know your guider. Um, I always used uh, resting heart rate along with O2 saturation rates uh, every morning to make decisions with coach uh, on if I was recovered enough to handle what we had laid out for the day or not. Um, and then during the, you know, during training, it was like heart rate was always there for me to keep an eye on. And if it did anything out of the ordinary, that's when I paid attention. I stopped training, you know, specifically by heart rate numbers, right? Because they're so, they have so much variability as we know, but I was always aware of it. And I always needed to pay attention if it was doing something funky, then that's when I would, you know, kind of react to it, if you will. Um, but power was, uh, you know, extraordinarily specific throughout the whole journey from road racing to track racing. And, um, you know, mo- many times if there was a day where I couldn't hold the specified power, uh, you know, wouldn't you know, my heart rate was doing something funky. So, you know, that was just kind of, it's just the whole body picture that you need to look at. Right. So where I'm going with this too, is that I think that in the very near future, what's going to happen is power is going to become a critical element in training for runners. Because as you suggested, um, there is less variability and there's more consistency in process than there would be with just heart rate. Now, I want to be very clear when I say this, that I, like you, believe that heart rate is a great ally uh, in this process because I think they are essentially telling you two different things. Right. And uh, I discussed this with Hunter Allen recently where we, we talked about um, this versus that, so to speak. And right. he talked to me about how he used to really marry the two focus on heart rate response relative to power output and then make decisions about what to do with his athletes based on that information. And now he's kind of lent it almost exclusively to power. I don't think that that 
is what I would do. I think that I would get to a place where I would start looking at the comparatives. How much power can you create and what did it cost you to create it? And so the only way to really understand cost is through heart rate, at least so far. But when we get to a place where we can effectively measure power output running, it's going to change the game. It's going to, it's going to change the way people approach every distance from running a 50-yard dash to, to running an ultramarathon. It's going to change everything. And, well, we didn't talk about it, but I'll, I'll, I'll bring it up, is that RPM Squared is a company that I've been keeping an eye on, and they're involved with us, and they've been helping me out a lot. I got to them because I was really curious about the nature of what they were trying to do, which was to be able to measure power. That's not the only thing they measure, by the way, but measuring power at the footbed in a shoe. The ramifications of this, and my day job is doing gait evaluations for athletes, looking at the way they're moving and such, and helping them to, you know, stave off the potential for injury and to produce greater performances. And the difference between what happens on a bike and what happens when you're running is that when you're running, your body is essentially a loose adapter. You're not connected uh, like you are with the bike. There's no variability in um, contact with the ground when you're on the bike. The wheels are always in contact with the ground. So you're not bouncing up and down as you're moving down the road. And the continuity of this power production is, is dependable. And I think that being able to look at power yield while moving on foot is going to be interesting. Because, and, and we talked about this last time we had a conversation over the phone, where I think it's going to get interesting is when they could start looking at directional power. Because, you know, obviously if you're just kind of standing up and down, you know, you're upright, mm-hmm. and you are running down the road that way, then the power that's being measured is going directly into the ground and gravity's pushing you into the ground. Right. If you've got a bit of a forward lean and you're making contact under center of mass, you may very well be exhibiting less power but producing more yield, covering more distance quicker. I don't know. But I just think it's, it's going to be the holy grail of running mechanics when you're able to garner this information. What's your thoughts on that? Right. Well, you're, you're so much more of an expert than I am in running. But uh, from a cycling perspective and seeing how power was a complete game changer for us, it only makes sense. I think it's going to be the same for running. I mean, it, ha- it has to be. And, it's, and I say, uh, you know, big kudos to RPM because it's about time somebody figured out power for the runners <laughs> because, they, you know, they've been still in archaic world for, you know, the last 15 years where we've had access to, uh, you know, power meters and, and being able to train, uh, you know, in the future. And, you know, I know that they come from, you know, the medical world. So they're, uh, you know, under stringent standards by the FDA, which is obviously very different than the standards of FTC. So um, they're, you know, they, they really know their stuff. And now they're, you know, they're just making the whole platform more robust and, and of course, of course, you know, feature rich too, because that's what us athletes and coaches want. You know, we want to be able to do all sorts of um, things with it. But to me, again, from cycling, because, you know, you're more running, um, 
for us, we have never had access to any type of power meter where we didn't have to make a change to our bicycle because all the power meters that we have access to are either hub-based, crank-based, or spider-based. So if you are you know, a cyclist and maybe you have a bike for every discipline, you know, maybe you have a mountain bike, a road bike, a TT bike, a cross bike, and maybe you have four or five bikes, or maybe you just have two. Well, you either have to have five power meters at 2000 a pop, or you have one power meter and you're constantly having to switch the power meter back and forth, which requires, you know, you really know what you're doing, or you got to go to a mechanic. This is a game changer to me because you won't have to do that at all. None of it. It's footbeds that slip into the sole of your shoe, uh, which is as easy as, you know, one, two, three, you know, take them in, take them out, slip them in the other shoe, put your feet in and, you know, you're good to go. It's all, you know, Ant Plus compatible and, you know, can communicate, uh, you know, with your phone. And and I think after Interbike, they're going to have it is going to be communicated with the, um, uh, you know, Dot Fit and also Garmin. And so you are going to be able to now not have to make any of those changes at all. And that's, gosh, I mean, that's what, you know, the professionals, okay, we go, whatever, whoever, you know, it's free and they just, and the mechanics do it. But for everyone else on the planet, um, this is, this is extraordinary. Well, yeah, from a standpoint of convenience, no question. There's, there's a lot to be said for that. But the idea is, well, let's look at triathlon for a second. You know, when you get off of that bike and then you're able to look at what's happening while you're running, and especially if you prepared yourself to understand what you're trying to achieve when you're running, um, let's look at it from a, a couple different perspectives. Okay, first of all, one of the things that they talk about is the ability to gather what they call bilateral equivalents. And in essence, what that suggests is that we want both feet doing the same thing. We don't want one leg doing all the work and then the other leg taking a free ride because that's generally the the sauce that creates injury. You're going to get to a place where you have this uh, compensation. And, and incidentally, I tell people all the time, you never see an athlete come to me or come to you and say, gosh, both of my knees are blown out. You know, it's always one or the other, or it's a hamstring, or it's a calf, but it's not both at the same time. And which it's that strong leg. Right. And a lot it, of people think it's the weaker one, but it's the strong leg that takes it and usually is the injured one. Right. Because of that. Yeah. It's doing all the work. Right. And, and so if you were to be able to, and, and of course, uh, so far with power meters, we've been able to do this no problem which is to, on the fly, you're looking at your little cycling computer and you could see whether one leg is taking on more load than the other leg. And then you can essentially make adjustments on the fly while you're riding the bike to try to compensate or, or even things out. And, and ultimately through training, you develop the ability to you know, share the load equally and, or maybe you've got to do something with your bike fit, in which case you get yourself jigged up and it's all just perfect for you and then things start to settle down. But as I suggested earlier, when you're running, your body is essentially a loose adapter. If you're overstriding and you're making contact with the ground ahead of your center of mass, it's going to show up in the data. It's going to show you that you're either heel striking. It's going to show you uh, the, the, the amount of um, hang time there was in one leg versus the other. It's going to give you all this information about your cadence and let you see where the loading patterns are. And if you're a student of the art, if you're paying attention to the information, then you could start self-correcting. Or if you're a coach, 
for example, Dotsie, you could have went out for a run today and you could have uploaded this data. I could look at it from where I'm sitting and say, well, Dotsie, this is, looks this looks like what you're doing wrong, and let's try to get this corrected. Right. Which, again, this is a serious game changer, especially for someone like me, because and with the advent of all the um, the tools we have today, GPS, because of all the smartphone action, somebody could very easily send me a file that shows me what their heart rate was, the distance they traveled, the altitude that they, they maneuvered over, what the cost of work was, what their speed was, and I can make some pretty good decisions about what to do with them based on that information. But if I was to add to that the ability to say, well, look, dude, your cadence is off. You're loading a lot heavier on your left foot than you are your right. Uh, we need to try to sort that out. There could maybe some exercises we're going to do if there's some kind of imbalances that we need to, to chase down. Just what a cool amount of stuff that you could look at that could make a huge difference. And I think I shared this with you on the phone the last time we spoke, and I, I keep preaching about this, and, and I'm going to hold him to it. Jim Vance said, and I think he wrote it in a blog, that when power makes its way into the running community, all the records are going to fall. From from sprinting to marathon, all the records are going to fall. That's kind of what gets me up in the morning, is being able to look at these things. And I like to be innovative. I like to be on the front end of things. And I like to know what's going to take me there and how can, how can I do something that the other guy can't do, quite frankly. Right, right. I would I would second that motion because I was uh, we, we were living proof of that um, when we broke the world record in 2010. And it was really completely based on the knowledge that we had, knowledge is power, of the exact power output and turnover that we needed to create on that specific track to break the world record that night. It wasn't just go really hard, you know, do your best, see what you got, you know. I mean, it was completely broken down to, you know, half of a watt. And uh, we, we pulled it off by the skin of our teeth wouldn't have been done without the knowledge of power. I think you said somewhere that there's there's no chance for mistakes when you're in that track environment. And when you're preparing for something that way, opposed to, say, for example, a road race, you know, you can make a lot of mistakes and recover from those mistakes in a road race. You can't make those mistakes on the track, right? Right. And that, I mean, that kind of um, was, was one of the alluring things to me about the track coming from uh you know 10 years on the road i was just about ready to retire from the road and kind of just you know move on to the next phase phase of phase of life i felt just very uh you know kind of satisfied with my career and was ready to move on and and tried the track for the first time and that i mean obviously it's still cycling so it's the same but different but um that's what i was just so incredibly attracted to and uh, really energized by was could I handle that enormous amount of pressure from that pedal stroke one until last pedal stroke of not making trying not to make a single mistake and that every single moment and every single pedal stroke counted it was it was it was kind of like it was exciting it was a rush you know, and, and of course you're never perfect because perfection is an illusion, as my coach always told me pretty much, you know, three times a day because you're always uh, trying to seek that and it's not real. But, um, yeah, that that was what uh, – and then, you know, obviously five-hour road race is extraordinary in different ways. But um, that's what really drew me to it. 
but could I handle that pressure? Well, but I think, and, and what I try to get people to look at when they're training is training is not racing. And when you race, you know, you're putting it all on the line. There's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of uh, mental things going on to take you maybe where your, your training may not have taken you. It may prepare, your training prepares you, but um, that little gut, that little demon inside you that you reach down and grab and wake up when you need it, it's a whole other deal. But in training, I like to look at the data. I like to look at everything, every day. And so that everything that you do is going to lead you to this promised land, as opposed to the, and I started saying, or talking about this a little earlier, is the randomness, where you just kind of do what your friend's doing. I mean, that's all well and good for recreational sport, but when you're trying to win a race, when you're trying to get into the to the winner's circle where there's a check involved and possibly sponsorship involved, you can't you can't approach it like that. Right. You've got to know what you're doing. You've got to have a plan, and you've got to know how to make decisions relative to the plan when things don't seem to be working out and when things do. Right. And I think that the only way that you can effectively do this is by having methods to collect this information. What's happening when I hit the ground? What's happening when I when I do whatever it is I do? I mean, as you, again, this, this whole thing with the cycling and the correlation that I see here, it's raw force production, and what do I have to do to prepare to get to that place? And as you suggested, is it somebody figured out that at 102 uh, tooth gear, and this is the cadence you have to hold, and this is the amount of power you have to produce. It can't you can't waver from it. And this is the length of time you have to support that work. Yeah, you can see if the workload that you're doing in training is working. You know, that's the other really cool thing that your heart rate doesn't tell you. So, you know, those six hundred pounds I was lifting, we could start to see if that was working. You know, because you you know if you're just doing it, you well, I think it's working. I mean if I feel stronger, it you know, I, I mean this it certainly hurts. But actual transfer to the bicycle is, you know, kind of like a whole nother, you know, whole nother deal. And, and you know, people have been talking about for years, um, you know, road cyclist, off-season weight training or not. You know, some coaches believe in it, some don't. But that most of that stuff is like we were saying is, you know, squats or deadlifts or calf raises. And they kind of go, well, I don't know if it's really, you know, making this, making an impact. But, I mean, I think with power you can, you know, really directly – tell and, and chart the course and watch the graph and say, you know, I am getting stronger and on the track it's so easy because you have that one gear so you're doing your efforts on the track and you're either you're either stronger or you're not. You're holding the 122 RPMs and whenever you're falling off that gear as we say is, you know, kind of that cutoff point and it better not be before the finish line before those 3000 meters are over. Because right. if it's at 2000 meters, which it used to be when I first started, you know, it was like I couldn't even go the distance without falling off dramatically, um, you can, you know, you can tell with power if it's working what you're doing in training. Right. Well, I, I, again, I, I really like information. I like to be able to see what's going on and I like to make decisions about it. So when you, when you were, uh, so many things come to mind when you're, I listen to you talk. One of them being that when you're pushing 600 pounds, does anybody ever come up and say, well, you managed to push 600 pounds, and we know that that's what we needed to achieve. 
can you push 700 pounds? And if you did push 700 pounds, would that be beneficial? Because I would think that there's almost a place where you're changing the, the energy system. You're almost getting, you're detracting from the potential uh, outcome you're trying to achieve if you were to just say, well, 650 was easy. Let's go to 750. Let's go to 800. I don't know that that would translate into a better performance over 3,000 meters. It might for a shorter distance. Right. And I don't, I mean, I couldn't have done it with what, you know, to remind you, we were doing, for my distance, we were doing um, 60 reps times five. I mean, we would start it over the course of the years. I mean, it was, we would start at 25 reps, then 40 reps, then 50 and 60. It would build. It was this whole, you know, kind of complex build process, as you can imagine. But um, there was a, a max that my body could handle. And he, to be specific about the numbers, you know, coach had kind of written out at the beginning that he thought it would end around 640 pounds, if I remember correctly, right in there, it was real specific, like 638 or something. And I ended at 610. So it was just a, it was just listening to my body. I mean, it was, you know, what, what, that was the max that I was able to move without literally in that fifth rep or sorry fifth set 60th rep not being able to move the weight anymore i mean it just not not moving it so we you know your body kind of tells you where that end is pretty easily i'm still stuck on this i'm still stuck on the fact did you say 60 repetitions for five sets yeah that's, holy that's cow the caveat there it's not like five or ten or oh i got some God. really strange looks from the meathead men in the gym I would imagine. Really strange looks. Like, they're like, why is that small woman? <laughs> Unbelievable. That's just a ton of weight. It is, but it's over years. You know, I mean, you have to remember that. It's definitely not something I just jumped in the gym and threw that weight on. It was like, woohoo, we're off to the Olympics. Yeah, well. It was years, you know, almost three years of a build to get to that uh, and maintain it. And, uh, you know, so, yeah. But it, it is a lot of weight. I agree. I couldn't do, I can barely do half of that now. Now, see, the problem is uh, when we start comparing the sports is that, you know, it's all a function of sports specificity. When you're in that position on the sled to do those leg presses, it's very much akin to being on the bike. Because on the bike, you're in a saddle and it's really pretty uh, quad specific when you're you're pushing that, that power. And you're essentially in the same angles almost that you're in when you're on that sled. Where for a runner, because their core strength is so important, if they were to take away from this, and I'm, I'm almost saying this on purpose so somebody has to go out and try to do 600 pounds for 60 repetitions <laughs> on a leg sled and find out, ooh, it doesn't improve my running. Right. Um, you can't do it. There's no There's no correlation there because you'll develop great quads, but you'll develop Im- imbalances as well. For running, that's just not where you want to be. You, you know, big, beefy quads are not what you need when you're trying to run. Right. Um, and which also brings me to the point that where you're making contact with the ground is very, very important, which is where if you're landing under center of mass, you're not being... Um, highly dependent on any particular region so your quads or your hamstrings or your calves are not taking the load uh, alone you want to try to develop this uh, this uh, synergy in your muscularity so that you're you know you're basically allowing 
gravity to push you down the road and you're just getting out of the way. It's kind of a controlled fall. Right. Different deal. So, yeah. So squats, yeah, might be a good idea, but not with 600 pounds. My 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 opinion. <laughs> no, I mean it kind of you can kind of can correlate. I guess again, I'm not the expert, but uh, to running track. So the, I mean obviously the hundred meter, two hundred meter guys and girls do strength training. You know, so on up to maybe the eight hundred meter runners, but past that, not so much. Would that be right? Well, that's the old thinking, and okay. I, and I'm not suggesting not to 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 lift weights uh, or to develop uh, external overload. Um, but I think that there is a diminishing return somewhere down the path because uh, you start, I mean, this gets into a pretty complex conversation because what happens is when you do a lot of weight training, you're going to start developing your fast twitch muscle fibers and then that's going to sure. start detracting from your slow twitch fibers. Sure. And then what ends up happening is you're not able to be as oxidative as you once were. And yeah, the shorter distances are starting to look pretty rosy, but the longer stuff you just die because you can't, you're totally glycolytic all the time. And so you got a problem there. But uh, at the end of the day, it's what the point I was trying to make was the angles are different when you're when you're trying to uh, have some crossover benefits for the sport. I wouldn't. Uh, I, quite frankly, I think I should probably get on that sled and um, find some weenie weight that I can push for sixty repetitions for five sets right. uh, and develop my quads. Because I tell you what, I, I went out for a fifty-five mile bike ride on Sunday. And I was busy trying to trash the guy that was with me. You know, here I am, the the plumber with the leaky faucet. Hey, what do you want to do today? And so that's my training, right? I just decided that what I wanted to do was make this guy suffer, and and make him want to quit. And I succeeded in that, but I haven't I haven't been able to walk for two days. <laughs> he doesn't know that, so uh-huh. no, I think he does know it. Oh shoot! <laughs> Never let him see you sweat. Come on. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But yeah, it was uh, it was dumb, and but at the end of the day, it becomes a function of the way you you your body adapts to the work you do. And I think there's much to be said for collecting this information, and and understanding the the energy systems you're trying to produce and develop, and how having a system of training rather than some random approach to training is really, really important. Right. That's an important concept that you were just uh, you know, bringing up about the different energy systems because um, it is very true, but it, I mean, especially in, in, in track, that speed is a strength killer. So I would always have my strength work and my speed work completely separated. When I was in strength phases, and we were doing those 600 pounds of the leg sled, I was in cadences of, you know, 50 RPMs on the road. Everything I was doing was slow movements, strength, muscular building, because as soon as you start to speed that up, as you know, which is what you were just pointing out, that I thought, oh, man, that's something we could add in to tell the viewers. As soon as I started to speed things up, I would lose somewhere between between 10 to 12% of my strength that I had gained. Uh, so... The, they were never done in tandem or at the same time. When I was ready for competitions about three to four weeks out of competition, that's when I would lay off the strength and head into speed because obviously, I think obviously, some people don't know this, speed comes so much faster than strength. Strength is literal muscle tissue that you have to grow, whereas 
feed is a simple neuromuscular connection or communication between muscle and brain. So depending on your, your talent well, speed can come quite quickly once it starts, uh, once it starts tr- you know, being trained. So then we would go into a speed phase that would last about three weeks and speed up that strength so that then I could turn the gear over that quickly. Well, you know, I'm really glad you brought that up because there is another misnomer, uh, especially in the sport of OCR. And I'm going to get people that are going to gripe to me about this, but, you know, you got my back, so we're going to do this. Okay. Speed and strength are not shopped for in the same department. No. And you can develop strength as a foundation, as which sounds like you were doing. You develop this foundation of strength, but when it comes time to, to start looking for speed, it's a different animal. It's a neurological adaptation. It's not a contractile adaptation. Right. And there's a completely different approach to developing speed than there is to developing strength. And they do not happen at the same time. You can't get stronger and faster at the same time. And a lot of people think the more strength exercises they do, the more speed they'll end up, end up creating because they're stronger. And that's not the case. And, you know, I told you earlier on that I work with boxers. And when I say boxers, I mean world champions. I've worked with two title holders. And I'm a fan of the sport. So I, I look at what they're doing. And it's, it never fails. You see the guy with the great big muscles get in the ring. And they got a guy that's got a fairly slight build. And the guy with the slight build ends up beating the tar out of the other guy. Right. Because he's quicker. He's got far more speed. And the other guy's got all the strength in the world, but he ends up running out of gas because he had him to carry that all, all around with him. Exactly. It, it really is important to, to note that the strength and speed are, are not, I mean, they're, they're both integral parts of the process, but they don't come about at the same time. Right. Well said. Yeah. So, Dotsie, you don't, are you still riding? I mean, I'm assuming you're riding, right? Oh yes, yeah. I'll ride till the day I drop dead. It's I love it. And my my husband is a uh, competes on a master's level and is a uh, well now he's a lot faster than I am, which is annoying. But um, we we love to ride together. So I ride, gosh, at least four days a week, I'd say. Wow. Yeah. And how what, are your rides typically the the same type of ride? You just got a thing you do. Um, you know what? No, lately we've been doing a ton of mountain biking. I'm thinking about doing some mountain bike races next year to mix it up a little bit. Uh, I'm teeny tiny bit of the competitive bug is, is, is coming back, but I feel like doing something just totally unrelated to, uh, you know, what I was good at. So, uh, we do, you know, long road rides. Sometimes I'll go with him on his interval days and just try and stay on his wheel, mountain biking. I really have to mix it up to keep it interesting just because I, you know, obviously did it for so many years um, so seriously that, you know, now I just have to keep it fun to stay engaged. Hmm. Well, I, I got two rides a week. That seems to be my thing. And I need to separate them by a few days in order for my body to... Uh, get ready to do it again right which is probably a pretty good indication that i'm going out too hard too often right right i don't know what else you're doing on the other days or you know what your sleep or nutrition or any of that is but (laughs) yes i mean maybe you are well it's not the only thing i'm doing no question i mean i i have i have days when i run i have days when i strength train and 
sure. And I have days when I prefer to sit back and drink a beer. But yeah, those are good days. Yeah, but um, you know, I mean, I, I, it's really interesting because I, I was looking at somebody's training program the other day, and you know, this is a younger fellow. He's probably in his late twenties, and I'm looking at the amount of work he was doing. I thought, you know what? I'm not doing much less than he's doing. I mean, and I'm always bagging on myself about not being able to produce a lot of work and getting old and all that jazz. But at the end of the day, I, I am actually out there more often than, than I care to, to mention. I mean, I mean, I'm physically involved in some fashion of exercise about five days a week. Um, but the biking, I'm, you know, because I got off the bike for a little while and I'm trying to get back on it. it just, it's just taking some time. You know, I don't know. Yeah. 50 miles is all I, I can do in, in, a, in a good day without suffering for the rest of the day. Yeah, well, 50 miles, is, that's pretty legit. Yeah. Well, look, uh, Dotsie, I really appreciated having a chance to bring you on. And um, I'm very excited to see what happens when you start getting serious about this mountain bike. <laughs> Don't expect that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you never know. I mean, come on. You never know. I know. I did a... Um, like a PSA with Georgia Gould, who's the bronze medalist from the London Games and cross-country mountain biking. And uh, I'd been doing a little bit of mountain biking, but I was just so inspired by being in her presence. And uh, I now I'm just like, addicted to it. And um, it's in a good way. You know, it's just so new, but I'm so bad at some of the technical stuff. And it's just, you have this hunger to want to improve every time on it. And uh, now I'm watching mountain bike videos and how to get better on rocks and roots and, you know, wet. And it's just like a whole thing now. <laughs> it's really fun, but I'm not very good at it. Have you met Leslie Patterson? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know Les pretty well. She's an animal. Yeah, she is. <laughs> she is. Man. Yes. Yeah, yeah, can you, you had, 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 you had her on the show without having to bleep everything she says? Yeah, but I'm okay with it, you know. Me too, but she's so funny. <laughs> yeah, she's got the F-bomb worked out. She does. I know. She's a monster. When she, she's, a, she's so rad. And this year's been good. Extraordinary. I mean, she's so tough. Yeah. You know, she, she, she broke her wrist not too long ago and was back in action, you know, three, four weeks later. And won a race. Yeah, I know. She's just, yeah, I know. I'm a big fan of her. And I think, matter of fact, I think she won the race overall. She beat the men, too. Coming off her broken wrist. I do know. I remember reading about that race. You're right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. She broke the course record, and I think she was second overall. One man beat her. I remember that reading that uh, article. Yeah, she's amazing. Well, she. I think she won the European uh, Xterra Championships just weeks ago. She just. Just. um, I thought for some reason I thought it was always in Hawaii. There's a European Xterra Championship, oh, okay. I guess. Okay, so European Championships. Right. She was over, uh, okay. over in Europe. Yeah. Because I, I sent her a, a message, and she told me she's, she'd get back to me when she got back from Europe. Oh, crazy cool. But anyway, so look, Dotsie, I guess one day we'll get a chance to meet each other. All right, you can teach me how to run. <laughs> well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.